If you have your copies of God's Word, I invite you to turn there now. And then, while you turn there, I'm going to eat a piece of humble pie. How many here have gotten to the age, if it's not written down in front of you and you don't trip over it, you will forget it ever existed? Anyone at all? We were supposed to vote on those members, <laughs> constitutionally, and I, frankly, I, bra- I, uh, I blame Holly Cunning. Um, <laughs> Normally, there she is. Normally, she helps, reminds me of everything in life. And um, so, do I have someone who would make a motion? I got Brett right over here. Do I have a second? I see Dave, Dave Munt on a second. Let's just, to make sure we nail it down, how about a third? Anyone want a third? It. All right, we got a few. We got Matt. All right. All those in favor of welcoming those 10 people into membership, signify by saying amen. amen. Those opposed say absolutely not. All right, that's been carried. All right, now that I've eaten that piece of humble pie, we'll walk into these verses right here. And we're going to, by the way, this will be the last time we're in Romans chapter 9. And then we're going to go to Romans chapter 10. It's been like the Mount Everest of doctrine. The views are beautiful, but man, the air is thin, is it not? Am I alone on that? I'm like, this is wonderful up here. Can we get back to, you know, how to be a better daddy or something? But (laughs) we're going to pick up in verse 24. The sovereign election. Now let's pick up in verse 23. And he did so to make the riches of his glory... Upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles, basically the whole world. As he says to Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out, Concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, some from many. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us to us a posterity or a seed or a remnant, if you will, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness got saved? Even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, who spent their entire lives trying to become righteous, did not get there? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as through it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in Jesus, him, will not be put to shame or disappointed. Let's ask God's blessing and we'll go through this together. Gracious Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself this morning. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Help me to remember my studies, Lord. 
But I ask that anything that happens here today, that your bride, your bride that you chased, you pursued, you purchased from the slave market of sin, that we would leave here with Christ on our lips and in our hearts and in our minds. We pray this. We pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever said the words, why me? Why me? Often those words are used in a negative context, if you will. You have a flat tire. You pull off to the side of the road and you say to yourself, what church? Why me? You get out of the car and it begins to rain. Why me? You go to get the car jack and all of, its, all of its parts, and the one part you need is missing, and you say to yourself, what? Why me? You finally get the lug nuts off the wheels, you drop it only to see it roll to the exact center underneath the car, and you say, why me? Today, this is the question that will be answered, but only in a positive way. This is a question that Paul will unpack after teaching sovereign election of God unto salvation. If God sovereignly chooses some to be saved, and y'all remember this from last week, if he is actively preparing some for honor and passively preparing some for destruction, if God sovereignly chooses some to be saved and allows others to stay, if we are all from the same lump of sinful clay, the clay of humanity, the question that rises is, why me? You may be even a little more specific than this. Why a sinful Gentile like Brett? Why a sinful Gentile like you and me, and not all of God's chosen nation of Israel? The first thing we need to look at here is we've got to remember this was written in a completely different time and culture that because things are all caps, Paul is not yelling at the church at this time. All right? This basically, when you see this here, means that whenever you see something in all capital letters, especially within the NASB, he's quoting the Old Testament. So if you see all caps, you know you're in the Old Testament. Paul will address why not all of Israel is saved and conversely, why many Gentiles are being saved. We see this in the words when we start out when he says this, whom he has called not only from among the Jews, but also all those Gentiles in the church sitting next to you as well. The word called here is in the aorist tense, which means a done deal. Those he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, all in the aorist tense. It continues to bear the meaning of the effectual call of God, i.e. when God calls someone to salvation, he is effective in his efforts. By his sovereign election, both Jews and Gentiles are being called out of the same lump of, of clay that is our sinful condition. And Paul is going to tell them that it is, this has always been the plan of God. God is not adapting His plan. He is not changing His plan on the fly. He's not looking into the future and going, oh, I didn't anticipate Brett doing that. I better run ahead of that to make it look like I am in control. God is not adapting His plan. 
because of Israel's response. In fact, this has been God's plan the whole time. God's word has not failed. You'll see that in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It has always been God's plan to save a remnant. To save a remnant out of the entire clump of mankind, clay both Jews and Gentiles. And the genius Paul, who by the way, has the equivalent of today's standards of two full PhDs, will, will show this by adapting some Old Testament passages that were written nearly 2,800 years ago today and nearly 800 years ago when he wrote this to the church in Rome. That is an incredible memory from a man with two PhDs. And he says this, let me, let me tell you how this has always been God's plan. And he quotes from Hosea, uh, chapters 1 through 3, specifically 2 and 3. I will call those who are not my people my people, and those who are not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in a place where it was said, you are not mine, I will make them the sons and the daughters of the living God. Again, this passage is about God's total sovereignty in all things. God is not adjusting his plan based on Israel's disappointing um, uh, response. In fact, if you look, and and this is not in my notes, but if you look at verse 33, it says this, just as it is written, behold, I, that's God, am laying a stone in Zion. Zion is Israel, Jerusalem, for the purpose of being a stumbling block. God is incomplete, sovereign, control. This has always been God's sovereign plan to salvation. We see it up here. Look at these words here. They're they're, they're not conditional here. I will call. They shall be. The Lord will. It shall. It will be saved. What I want you to see here is God is exercising his complete, all-powerful sovereignty. He is omnipotent. He has a plan of salvation, and it has always included Jews and Gentiles. Nothing can circumvent the will of God. Nothing can can change it. God never pivots because he is surprised. Even in the most sensitive area of our intellect and heart, salvation. Paul's going to borrow from the, the prophet Hosea. And he's going to borrow from him to teach some things here. When God gave a very difficult and painful life lesson, an illustration to Israel about what true salvation is all about. And Paul's going to grab that 800-year-old for them, 2,800 for us. He's going to grab that, that illustration of salvation with God and Israel, and he's going to adapt it for all of us here today. 800 years ago, Paul wrote Romans. God told Hosea, there it is, to marry a prostitute by the name of Gomer. How many here can at least say, Gomer does not sound attractive? Anyone at all? What'd you name it? Gomer. Oh, okay. Now, that's just my imagination there. But Gomer was a prostitute, and Isaiah was told to marry her. And to have children with her. Oh, and by the way, Hosea, you are not allowed to divorce her even when, and he tells her, she will be rampantly unfaithful to you. After all, she is a prostitute. Hosea was told that he was not allowed to divorce her and to have children with her. By the way, for the sole purpose of giving a true life example 
all right? An object lesson to Israel, the bride, and who was not being faithful to her husband, God. It will be an object lesson for Israel during that time. Now together, Hosea and Gomer would have three children. Each child's name was a message to Israel. How would you like that? Each child's name was a message to Israel and their unfaithfulness to God and their rejection and their lack of faith. And their kids' names were, and I I love this because it's a beautiful picture. Imagine the first child comes out and you say, all right, what's his name, God? Jezreel, which means Yahweh will destroy all of Israel. How'd you like to be Jezreel in Israel during that time? Hi, my name's, get out of here, all right? Well, time goes on, Gomer's unfaithful, they have another child, and it's Lo-Rahama. Yahweh will no longer have any compassion on Israel. Oh, this is going to be a wonderful object lesson. Then they have a third child. Doesn't he look like a stinker? They all look like stinkers. Lo-Ami, not my people. Yahweh has rejected Israel as his people. When you add up all three names, here is the object lesson, a true life object lesson from from Hosea and Gomer, a prostitute and a prophet. Well, that sounds like a joke, doesn't it? A prophet and a prostitute walk into Israel and they give an object lesson. Together, these three kids naming this, God will show no compassion for you are no longer my people. Can you imagine being these kids in Israel during that time? These kids were very, very popular in Israel's circles. During this time, Gomer left her husband, Hosea, and was rampantly and consistently unfaithful to him. Israel was unfaithful to God. You see the parallel. She ended up disgraced, and on the slave market, Israel became slaves to Assyria. Hosea was told, not only are you not to divorce your wife, But you are to go buy her back from that slave market. And by the way, you're not to buy her back on the slave market as a slave, but I want you to go buy her and make her your 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 honored and beloved wife, regardless of what she's done. First, I want to acknowledge something here. God gave a powerful object lesson here about salvation. But can we just be maybe a little bit human here? How many here feel a little bad for Hosea? Anyone at all? You, can you see the Lord telling Hosea to do this? And Hosea is like, you know, that's one way we could do that, Lord. I was thinking like a puppet show, you know? We could really just deck it out. I feel bad for him in many ways. But what I want you to grab here is this. What absolutely stunk for, for Hosea was a beautiful object lesson about the sovereign grace of God in salvation. Here is the point. Here is the point. God's people are not His people because we somehow made ourselves beautiful and and, and decided to marry our husband, God. But rather, it is all about, and you see that beautiful picture up there, and with that picture, and this is an object lesson of salvation, but rather it is all about the gracious, compassionate, merciful God who calls unfaithful sinners back to Himself. And what Hosea was to Gomer, God is to us. It is all Him. The only thing we bring to the table is our unfaithfulness and our slavery to sin. He is the one who comes to buy us out of slavery. It was undeserved. It was unmerited. It was unsolved. It was all Him. He chose, He willed, and He saved us. 
In fact, we see it right there in the words, who are not my people, my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. And let me make this clear. God does not make us come to him against our will. All right? It's not the golden lasso. Is that Wonder Woman? I need to focus here with the invisible jet pulling us where we don't want to go. That's not what salvation is. Salvation isn't bringing us into the kingdom, kicking and screaming. All right? Salvation is, uh, is not making us come against our will, but rather makes us willing to come because the, we are being purchased from slavery and given freedom in Christ. And let us remember who those people are in this context. Those people are both Jews and Gentiles, Romans 9.24. And not all of them, but some of them, actively and passively. Last week, catch up if you can, and listening to that from last week. Some out of many. Paul shows us by pointing out this, how God dealt with Israel as well. And he quotes from the Old Testament, all caps, Isaiah 23, 22 through 23. Though the number of the sons of Israel may be like the sand of the sea, that's that promise he gave to Abraham. Yep, you're, the, the, the nation of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, that Hebrew idiom to say there will be countless of them. Yet only a small scrap of them. A remnant will be saved. It has always been God's plan to save some from many. Some from many. A tiny island of believers in an ocean of rejection inside of Israel. In fact, the word remnant here literally means trace. A little trace of a garment. A small portion. The larger point that Paul is making is this. Do not think it was on purpose... All right, that it was on purpose that God uh, tried to save the entire nation. From the very beginning, it's only a remnant that will be saved. And every one of those saved, we got to remember Romans 8.29, every one of those traces, that small number that was actively uh, prepared, all of them were foreknew, they were predestined, they were called, they were justified, and they were glorified. The golden chain of salvation. And then Paul just makes it clear. We're going to get to some application here, but before we get to application, we've got to unpack what the text means, because the meaning of the text ought to be the message in the morning. Amen? You don't need to hear from me. Paul just makes it clear about the remnant. If it were not for God's sovereign intervention in electing a trace, a remnant, from the whole nation of Israel, he uses the words right there. If the Lord of the Lord of armies had not left us descendants. When you see the word descendants, I just want you to go back to the remnant, the sons of the living God. If, if, if the Lord had not left some, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. What I want you to grab here is this. The words Sodom and Gomorrah represent, in fact, let's touch on that. Sodom and Gomorrah represent utter destruction, spiritually speaking utter destruction and judgment. The entire nation would have been spiritually and completely lost like Sodom and Gomorrah without God's sovereign intervention to save a trace, a, a remnant out of many. While Paul is talking about Israel here, let us remember it applies to all of us. 
We would be mistaken not to listen and apply this. In fact, that is the whole point. Paul is saying as it relates to your salvation, now grab this, here's our first point of application. As it relates to salvation, this is the story of every single one of us in this room right now, where you sit. If Jesus is your king, this is your story. This is your story. Like it or lump it, this is your story. You and I, Jews and Gentiles. In fact, this point will strike us right in the eyes for it is the same thing that we have in our midst today. Paul is telling them then, and he's telling us now, just as you cannot rely on being a member of Israel to be saved, neither can you rely, and grab this, we just had church membership, neither can you rely on being a member of a church to be saved. You must be part of the remnant. You must be born again. You must repent. You must believe. You must be being transformed into the image of Christ. And with this in hand, with all that capital letter context, Paul's not yelling. Hold that in your hand. Paul emphasizes that salvation has always been by God's sovereign, gracious election through faith. It is not your heritage. It is not your ethnicity. It is not your works. It's not your background. It's not your circumcision. It's not your baptism. It's not your high moral life. In fact, look at the very next words of Paul here. He says this, what shall we say then? Say what? To what? All that Paul has said in chapter 9. What do we say about this remnant? What do we say about this sum from many? A trace from a larger whole? What do we say about sovereign election? What you need to see here is Paul's getting to the bottom line at the bottom of chapter 9. That rhymed. I didn't even put that in my notes. (laughs) Salvation is responding in faith to the effectual call of God in our lives. What we have here is Paul is bringing the balance of sovereign election. He's bringing in the balance of personal responsibility. Both are clearly taught in Scripture, by the way. And we must therefore teach both as they come into focus inside of God's Word. Church, we must resist the temptation to emphasize one at the exclusion of the other. To exclude one, sovereign election or free will... To exclude one or emphasize the other is to pervert the gospel. Kent Hughes gives a wonderful, I think, summary of this when he says this. There are two wrong responses to sovereign election and free will. The first one is, I'll do it all myself. The second one is, God will do everything. We must respond in faith. While chapter 9 emphasizes election, we will begin to come into the personal responsibility of faith in our lives. But first, let's start with what begins salvation. What initiates salvation? What induces our labor to being born again in Christ? And that is God's sovereign election. We see it here. Those who did not pursue righteousness. This word pursue is an athletic term, all right? It's an athletic term that means to chase something, to hunt something, to put all of your effort to achieve a goal. It is preceded by the Greek words may, which means they did not. 
They did not pursue righteousness. Let me say it another way. They did not pursue salvation. Now I want you to grab this. Those who weren't even looking to be saved. Those who weren't even interested in it. And in this context, the Gentiles. All right. Now it's important to understand that Gentiles today culturally are very different from Gentiles back then when God's Word is being inspired and developed and given to mankind. We must remember at the time this was written, most if not all Gentiles were pagan. They were heathen. They were atheists. They were agnostics. They were highly involved in pantheistic cults of the world. They had no idea or rip about the Old Testament. In fact, Romans 3.11 says this, There is none that seeketh after God, how many church? No, not what? Not a single one seeks God. These are the people we're talking about. Yet look at what happened to those who weren't even looking for salvation. They weren't even looking for salvation. It says here, they attained salvation. They attained that righteousness, that right standing before God. Here's what Paul is telling them. God is the initiator. God is the pursuer. God is the one who goes to the slave market to unfaithful sinners who are, who are enshamed and he pursues, he buys, and he takes back home, not as a slave, but as an honored bride. He is the initiator. Like Hosea to Gomer. God is the one who pursues. God is the one who purchases unfaithful sinners from the slave market. He is the seeker. He is the pursuer. Romans 9.16 Those we think that will never be saved are oftentimes the very ones that God brings to Himself. Take a good look at the Word of God. And take a look at the ones God chose. They are the least likely among the likely. All right, You got Paul thrown off his horse, struck blind, and God goes, you're mine. Shall we talk about the 12 disciples? There's a ragtag group, is it not? Shall we talk about uh, 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 Mary Magdalene and, and, and Jonah and, and Abraham and Moses and all of these people? It's oftentimes the least likely that God brings to himself. God often brings those who are the least likely in our minds because in doing so, he receives greater glory, which, by the way, is the ultimate purpose of salvation. I want to speak to friends and parents of prodigals and people who have loved ones who are stubbornly rejecting Christ right now. I want you to grab this. The doctrine of election is the greatest hope that God can and will overcome determined rejection with His effectual call. Pray in the current of, of His sovereign election, not against it. Because it's only this that delivers people from their sins. My friends, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, if you are in Jesus Christ, this is what God did in your life and mine. This is what God did right here in your life in mine. And what it is that they were given Grab this. What is it they were given that they weren't even looking for? It's right up there. You ready? They weren't even looking for it. They didn't even desire it. They didn't even pursue it. Here it is. Faith. They were given faith. Faith is a gift 
of God. And he gave it to those who weren't even looking for it. But righteousness that is by faith. We must not interpret this absent from the context of Romans chapter 9 and sovereign election. The ultimate source of such faith is God's merciful pursuit of the trace of the remnant. And now we will look at the personal responsibility. Look at the contrast between those who were not looking, the Gentiles, and those who were looking. It says, however, that's where we get the contrast. However, Israel was pursuing salvation. They were pursuing the law of righteousness. The word pursue here is the same words that were used in verse 30 to the Gentiles. I mean, it's an athletic term to pursue, to hunt, to chase. Grab this. The Jews were pursuing it. They were chasing it. They energetically, energetically pursued the law of righteousness. Yet, Now, check this out. They could not get to it. They did not arrive to that law. That right standing. By the way, the law was never meant to save. The law was never meant to save. Those Ten Commandments are to remind you that you need someone else and someone else's righteousness because you cannot earn it. Amen? And whose righteousness do we need? His name is what? He is the Good Samaritan. The law is there to point out our need. Because we can never achieve. We don't have to guess why. Look at this. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though they could do it by works. That's why they couldn't attain it, even when they were pursuing it. It was not a lack of effort. It was not a lack of pursuit. It was not a lack of knowledge. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They had the covenants. They had the commands. What's wrong was the way they pursued a right standing before God. They were trying to earn it. They had the prophets, the Torah, the covenant. They loved pursuing righteousness so much that God's word was not enough. How many here have ever known someone from church where God's word is not enough? There's got to be more. Anyone at all? Okay. I have. They're not fun to hang out with, all right? Israel not only had the Old Testament and the law and all of these things, they needed more. So they came up with hundreds and hundreds. I think the count is roughly around six, seven hundred more rules. They wrapped around the Bible, the Old Testament, to bubble wrap it called the Shema because they needed more than just what the Scripture said because they wanted to earn it. Do you smell anything in that? Does the heart of the church do that at all? They love trying to prove and earn their salvation so much that the Bible wasn't enough for them. They wanted more steps, more rules, more earned righteousness. Grab this church. They wanted more services, sharper dress codes, more bylaws, stricter standards, sharper lines, a a thicker constitution, more levels of righteousness so that, that God didn't have to bend over very far to pull us out of the clay. In fact, we could just meet God halfway from the slave market. Let me make this clear. No one ever meets anyone halfway from a slave market or a cemetery. Aren't you glad today's church is not confusing belief in Jesus with belief in self? That's the main point. Belief in self. They were trusting in religiosity. 
They were trusting in culture. They were trusting in, in morality. And they did not pursue salvation by faith, but by effort. My friends, we must come to God with empty hands and place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. We cannot earn it. We cannot merit it. We can't inherit it. We can't attain it. It is by personal faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ initiated by God's effectual call, the balance. Such a message of grace was an affront to Jewish pride. It was an affront to Jewish pride. The thought that a thief on the cross who spent his whole life stealing, I want you to Keep your eye on the one on the right, the far right. We're going to make him the thief on the cross. To a Jew, the thought that a thief on the cross could spend his entire life sinning and stealing and murdering and, and, and pillaging could pursue sin. That's the Gentiles not even pursuing it, right? Yet at the moment of his death on the cross, all the guy who's got to do is look at Jesus and say, remember me, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Yet the Jew who worked hard for salvation their whole life is going to be turned away. That is abhorrent. That is a stumbling block. They tripped over it. They hated it. They rejected it. In fact, it says here, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. In fact, they crucified the stumbling stone. Because they weren't looking for a political... I'm sorry, here. Now grab this. Because they were looking for a political solution, not a spiritual solution. A political solution, not a spiritual one. They refused to believe that a carpenter from Nazareth, followed by prostitutes, fishermen, and tax collectors, who was crucified on a Roman cross, was the means of their salvation. They saw the Messiah as one who would fix their political problems. There's an application here, and I want you to grab this. And, And feel free to answer this. It's not a hypothetical. I want you to answer this. Does the American church, does the, does the Americanized Christian ever confuse the gospel as a political solution rather than a spiritual one? What's the answer? My good gracious grief. Do believers see the gospel as a political tool rather than a spiritual solution? Do we spend more energy trying to to make civic policy with the gospel rather than trying to make disciples? And let me just say this here. The latter is far more important than the former. In fact, the former means nothing if it's not being applied to the heart. Amen, church? You will never create enough American policy to save someone's soul. We tried it. And by the way, so did Israel. You might say, sometimes we just repeat their same errors. The thought of their salvation being entirely based on faith in a publicly executed nobody was a stumbling stone to them. It was foolishness. It was an affront to their pride and their effort to become righteous. No wonder Paul said the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God to being saved. They had all the right answers. Here's the problem, though. They had all the right answers to all the wrong questions. 
Because while they were pursuing a right standing before God, they were running in the wrong route, the wrong trail, the wrong direction, for the wrong purpose. They didn't pursue it by faith. And it is the same error that is ingrained in the church of America today. We subconsciously, if not overtly, seek salvation by achieving it rather than believing it. A solution for our cultural circumstances rather than our hearts. Oh, church, let me close with this. If we hear one thing, let us hear one simple truth here. Salvation is not a joint project where we do our best and let God do the rest. It is all of God. He pursues, He purchases, He chooses, He wills it, and then the only response that we give on the slave market is to repent and believe. In fact, He says here, and the one who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Here's some application. Faith in yourself is the biggest stumbling block to salvation. Faith in yourself. Oh, friends, I'm just going to say it. Put down the TikTok repost theology that the church is consuming today. Can I get a witness on that? The greatest stumbling block to salvation is believing in ourselves. Nowhere, ever, in any page, ever, is there a single word where we are told to believe in ourselves. Faith in yourself is not only the wrong path to salvation, it is the biggest stumbling block to sanctification. Jesus said, and finish these words, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, they must what? Deny themselves. And take up their death, their cross, and follow Him. Never follow your heart. Let God lead it. So what are we to glean from this? This is my salvation story. This is your salvation story. When you sit down and share your faith and you tell them about what God has done for you, and you tell them, I once was not one of God's people, but now I am. I wasn't even looking for Him. I didn't even pursue Him. He came to me. He sought me. He bought me. He called me. And because of this, I ran in faith to Him. His righteousness, not mine. His work, not mine. I could not earn it. I could not attain it. It was all Him. And He saved me for one primary reason. To transform me into a new creation. He is making me more like Jesus every day. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. No longer am I a stranger to God with no hope or no purpose. No longer am I an object of His wrath. I am a child of God, the recipient of His love, the forgiveness of my sins, with a purpose that will never burn out. Every day I wake up, I am better than I deserve. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And I wish the same for you. May I tell you about Christ what He did, what He's doing, and what He will do. And all you must do 
is accept the gift of faith. That is the story of every believer ever saved. This is your story and mine. Own it, share it. Because here it is. Why me? Because God. Is He not worthy of our everything? Gracious Heavenly Father, Thank you. May your word press into our flesh. May we change the view, the way we view our salvation, and just spend our lives glorifying you. Start with me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you, church. You are dismissed.